Today on Ag News Daily. We don't have African swine fever, so in order to test for it, you have to work through the diagnostic lab and you have to get the state and federal health officials involved. But Happy Friday, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson here on this Friday afternoon at the end of what's known here in Iowa, Mike, as hate week. Are you familiar with that term? I, I am. I've never really cared for it because I don't think we should be hating one another. Yeah. Well, it's I hate week. I think instead week. we should just be watching the Cyclones beat the Hawkeyes tomorrow. Okay. All right, then. Well, I'm a Hawkeye fan, so I think the tables are going to be turned. I think the Hawkeyes are going to pull through. I mean, let's be real here. You and I almost, or uh, Iowa State almost lost to you and I, Mike. Win's a win. A win's a win. Okay. It'll be a good win tomorrow with the Hawkeyes. Well, we'll see. We'll see. You know, sports gambling is legal now, Delaney House. Yes. We lay some money out. I know. My dad has been all into it since uh, they've started doing that in Iowa. Well, let's not gamble money. Well, let's be responsible citizens oh, and okay. state residents and just root for our respective teams. Okay. We will. Tomorrow, the big game. That's right. That's right. Well, I tell you what, tomorrow's the big game, but today was a big day in the world of agricultural news, Delaney Howell. Do you have any that is jumping out at you? Oh, my gosh. There are just so many headlines. We had all the trade stuff, as you guys talked about yesterday, with China and the tariffs. But big headline that just came out mm, a couple of minutes ago, actually, reported by Bloomberg, is that the White House is planning a biofuel quota to boost or offset the refinery waivers that they've granted. They said they will waive quotas the waived quotas could be reallocated beginning in 2020. This is just a tentatively agreed on plan. So again, I think that's the key here is it's tentative and it's just a plan. But apparently this draft plan was described by people familiar with the matter um, and said that the deal could still unravel as oil companies and senators seek to influence the final outcome. But... Interestingly enough, I think that's been hitting the Twitter machine as of late. So it sounds like they're just, it's nothing special. They're just actually going to do what the law requires, which is put these gallons of renewable fuels back into the into the thing. Right, back, back into the blending requirements. Right. Right. So I guess that's good news, but that's what the law requires. So I guess we're giving them a round of applause for doing what they're supposed to be doing. Oh, right. Well, I guess that's President Trump's way of saying, look, I'm doing the right thing. I guess. I guess. Uh, maybe it'll be helpful in 2020. That's something to maybe possibly consider perhaps looking forward to, I suppose. You don't sound too confident on that. I don't. I'm not very confident on this. I think we've seen throughout the duration of this administration, two different EPA administrators, we've seen a clear bias in favor of the oil industry. So I'm just a little leery that maybe this will be proposed and then right. nothing will end up happening. Which is absolutely a possibility. It is. But we've got some other news that I literally just closed. However, I do have a different story that I wanted to talk about, which is that the um, Finnish prime minister, a man whose uh, name I can't say, Mika Lintila, um, said earlier today that the European Union should look to block imports of beef from Brazil. Um, 
and consider blocking soybeans as well because they he I shouldn't say he's speaking for the whole of the EU but speaking for Finland anyway he is saying that they want to put pressure on the Brazilian government to do something about the wildfires in the Amazon which I thought was interesting and you said that was Finland that was doing that or saying that yes Yes, the Prime Minister mm. of Finland, he's saying that uh, basically looking at both of those things would force the government of Brazil to do something about these uh, wildfires. Do you think Finland imports a lot of beef? Well, he wants the entire EU to come together to block Brazilian beef imports. So this is his proposal, is that the EU as a whole basically suspend its free trade agreement with Mercosur that it just signed and instead look to block Brazilian beef imports. Right, I just think that's interesting that it's Finland that's heading this whole thing up. Well, he's just the one proposing it. You know, I, no, no indication from Reuters on how many other uh, leaders of EU countries were on board. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, he was talking at a news conference in Helsinki. Okay. Well, one thing it seems like agriculture is definitely on board with, Mike, is the repealing of the 2015 WOTUS, or Waters of the Rule, Waters of the U.S. rule, excuse me. And as of yesterday, the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers have officially scrapped and repealed that rule. The next step is to figure out what the new definition will be. They're going to propose the new language, descriptive language. But I groups are happy that this this rule has been rolled back. But a lot of folks came forward, a lot of uh, commodity groups came forward and said, we still need regulatory certainty so that folks like landlords and farmers, etc., know what is and what isn't governed and how they should be going about taking care of those things. So Absolutely. a step in the right direction, but still some clarity to be added. Yes, yes. You know, as, as for our listeners who probably remember, but if you're new, maybe you're not familiar, WOTUS, we have to have a WOTUS rule due to two different court opinions that ruled in separate ways. So we have to, that's the clarity that needs to be defined. So I know that the new EPA administrator, Wheeler, has been working on a new WOTUS rule, and I had a conversation with uh, Chris John from the Fertilizer Institute, and he said that the administration is being very open to um, input from outside groups. So it sounds like this new rule, when it is eventually codified, um, is at least taking into consideration the concerns of agriculture, which is good news. Ooh, that's a good word. Codified. Yes. It means put into law. I like written it. Written into code. So shall it be said, so shall it be written, All right. so shall it be done. Can you name that movie? Uh, I want to say it's like a Monty Python movie. It's not. It's The King and I. Oh, okay. Yes. It's also a theatrical production. Yes, I'm aware. Um, let's see, Delaney. So we talked a little bit yesterday about renewed interest in agricultural products in China. We saw China step in with the largest soybean purchase since June. They bought 600,000 tons, as we talked about yesterday. They bought some pork, which was good news for the pork markets. And today we got word that they have said, the government has officially said, they are not going to put any new tariffs on pork and soybeans. So the existing tariffs as of now, are going to remain, but new tariffs won't be imposed despite the tariff hike that we put on China on September 1. Basically, they're trying to throw out that olive branch ahead of these uh, trade discussions that are coming in October. Yeah, and a little bit of follow-up on that. It seems like China is appreciative that we are not increasing tariffs, but according to one 
state-run media outlet that happens to also write in English. It's called the Global Times. They were apparently quoted, or they quoted experts from China saying that this decision to postpone extra tariffs is good for the upcoming trade talks, but basically called out President Trump and said that this is not, they wouldn't go as far as to say that this is a breakthrough and that trade talks are, as they stand, remain very tough and we're not really ahead of where we were prior to the announcement that these tariffs will not be increased or put into place. Right. I think that's a really good point. We're not ahead of where we were. Tariffs are going to stay the same. There's currently a 72% tariff on pork. Total heading into China, 35% of that is recent since this trade war has kicked off. So, yeah, yeah, we're certainly not gaining ground, but at least we're not losing any more ground. Yes, that's correct. Well, Delaney, I am all out of news. Do you have any more updates that need to be brought forward before we have our market discussion and chat about African swine fever? Yeah, I do have one other thing I wanted to discuss here because we know that the uh, the, the funding, the bill for our fiscal year is up come September 30th. And so House Democrats are currently working on a stopgap spending bill that could either prevent or slow the delivery of the latest round of trade aids after the fiscal year ends September 30th. They apparently have proposed to deny a request from the White House to include a provision in the continuing resolution, which would keep the CCC funds from going over its $30 billion borrowing limit. And that's the fund that, of course, Secretary Perdue has been using to make the market facilitation payment programs out of. Uh, so it's it's really a little bit murky right now what will happen, what could happen if we do not see that get passed. I think I, I guess the way I understand it is if we go into a stopgap spending bill, those MFP payments get halted until a new budget is approved. Oh, gotcha. It wouldn't be whatever the phrase is for the spending that still goes out regardless. I think that's how I understand it. Mm, okay, well... Get your applications in soon, I suppose. Yes. Get that money. Yes, get that free money. Get it, get it, get it. Um, speaking of get it, get it, get it, lean hogs today, Delaney Howell. We're out getting it, getting it, getting it. Should we jump into the markets before we have our interview? <laughs> yes, they were. Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks, and we've got some green on the screen today in the grains. For the most part, wheat was the lone exception, but September corn closed up a penny at 355 and a half, with the December contract up one and a half, finishing the day at 368 and three quarters. In soybeans, the September was up one and three quarters, wrapped up the day at 884 and three quarters. November up three and a quarter, well off the highs for the day, but did close at 898 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the September was unchanged at 485 and three quarters. December was down a quarter quarter penny to finish the day at 4.83 and a half. Jumping over to the world of livestock, strength in the morning in the live cattle complex was replaced by weakness as we rolled into the close for the week. October live cattle down 65 cents at 98.07.50. December down 57.50, finishing the day at 104.37 and a half. And mixed trade in feeder cattle with that front month September down 35 cents at 136.50 and the October up 7.5 cents. Wrap it up the week at 1. 
134.5750. And in Lean Hogs, they were the big mover today. The October contract was up $3.30 at 66.4750. December limit up, up the expanded daily trading limit of $4.50, closed at 68.70. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. After yesterday's impressive rally in the October contract, we're up yet again today, but not as much. September was up a penny at 18.31, with that October Class 3 milk up a nickel, finishing at 19.21. With that, Delaney Howe, let's kick it over to our interview with Dr. Chris Rademacher from Iowa State University Extension. Well, as hogs are limit up today on this Friday episode, I think it's very fitting we're talking about hogs, but also African swine fever with Dr. Chris Rodemaker, an ISU swine extension veterinarian. Chris, we've been traveling together all week this week, had a lot of uh, car time together, but we've also gotten a lot of time to discuss African swine fever, and we realized we'd really never broken it down, the science behind African swine fever and the disease itself. Can you fill our listeners in about African swine fever, the disease, the threat, that kind of a thing? Yeah, you bet. Absolutely, Delaney. And it has been a pleasure to travel around the state with you, taking a look at <laughs> pork producers and the state of the crops and, and just nice to be in the countryside. Yeah, African swine fever, so it... Um, it originated in Africa, originated in warthogs. It's a virus. It's a viral disease. It only affects pigs. I think that's a very important thing for people to understand, especially as producers and other people start hearing more things about this in the news lately. There's nothing uh, that can happen to people at all. You can't get sick from eating it, uh, infected meat, and you can't catch it from pigs or anything like that. So there's absolutely no public health concern about it. But the pigs, on the other hand, uh, that is a, probably a completely different story. So it's a viral disease. It affects pigs. Um, there's there's lots of different strains around the world. Uh, unfortunately, the the strains that are predominantly moving uh, through Europe, and, and really it was a disease that started in Africa, but in the late 2000s, it uh, actually moved into the Eastern European countries. And one of the ways I think it moves around is in infected meat because it can survive the processes of making sausage and things like that. So actually people feeding leftover food leftover food waste to, to pigs is probably the primary way. And they think either it was on a cruise ship or uh, airport waste is how it got into Eastern Europe. And it started to spread from there. Um, and that's one of probably the, the primary transmission methods. So it, it started to move slowly in Europe, kind of from Eastern Europe up into Russia. Uh, now it's marching west and where u.s pork producers were probably somewhat aware of it but it really got to be urgent and became the real threat is when it uh, jumped into china in uh, august of 2018 and what's been uh, really disturbing to watch is the speed at which that virus uh, moved uh, throughout that country it's really not a super contagious virus it's a blood-borne virus right so you really have to get it either by nose-to-nose contact between uh, infected and susceptible pigs or by eating any of those contaminated products um, or any sort of uh, blood being exposed to uh, to, to a susceptible animals. So uh, that's where the threat really got to be real is, is now it's like, okay, it's in China and, and really within a matter of about nine months spread across the country and has really created a, a major uh, shortage of pork over there because the strains that are um, 
that they have today are very, very virulent. This virus is a, it's a viral disease, so antibiotics won't do anything for it. And the other unfortunate thing about it is we have absolutely no vaccine technology at all for it. So you have a virus that makes lots of pigs sick and kills a high percentage of those pigs. And today we really don't have a response other than to detect it and attempt to um, isolate the animals and euthanize them and dispose of them. And that was some of the issues, uh, I think, in China, a lot of it probably having to do with culturally has actually helped to facilitate the spread throughout that country. So there's a, you know, I think knowing that it can be spread in some of these food, uh, contaminated food, and then the other concern I would say for U.S. pork producers are contaminated feed ingredients. China, uh, actually, uh, for several feed ingredients that are used in swine diets today, uh, may be one of two or maybe the only supplier. So there's certainly been concern about potential contamination. Uh, actually, when uh, the U.S. swine industry was infected with porcine epidemic, epidemic diarrhea virus, otherwise known as PEDV, in 2013-2014, they've uh, speculated that it came over on contaminated feed ingredients. And some uh, preliminary research done by Dr. Scott D. and his team at, uh, at Pipestone, uh, working collaboratively with South Dakota State University, has shown that the virus can survive in some feed ingredients uh, long enough that it could potentially make a trip over in uh, contaminated ingredients, that 30 to 40 day trip over in, into a feed mill in Iowa and still remain viable. So lots of things, lots of uh, concerns. Now there's a lot been done uh, between the different swine, uh, you know, National Pork Board, National Pork Producers Council, American Association of Swine Veterinarians, Swine Health Information Center, trying to work with government to shore up, you know, some extra security security in those areas and that may be one of the things that you may see is you see a lot more beagles on international flights that come into the uh, port of entry here in the different uh, airports throughout the country international airports they'll have beagles that are trained to sniff out those pork products and and they're trying to to do that when they everybody collect their um, luggage at the concentration point before you go through the mm -hmm. uh, uh, customs and border patrol so absolutely so yeah there's a lot, a lot of concern there. You, you know, I, I think it's, it's the deal. That, you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing about it is, is, you know, that uh, African swine fever, classical swine fever, foot and mouth disease. Those are all on the OIE list of um, foreign animal diseases. So it would immediately stop our trade. And, and we know, you know, we're, we're probably we've got an excess of supply here already. So it really, uh, you know, would, would threaten and would probably devastate uh, all of agriculture, truly and honestly, just yeah. because of losing the trade possibilities, right? Absolutely. Now, Chris, I wanted to circle back to the disease itself. When it infects a hog, how does it manifest? We know about PEDV and how that worked. And since we might have listeners, uh, you know, tuning in over their lunch hour, we won't get into too much details on PED. Sure. But porcine epidemic diarrhea kind of lays it out. What does African swine fever look like? Is it literally just a fever that the hogs contract? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. With PEDV, we really ha we hadn't seen things like that before, so it was really easy and obvious. And and because of the speed at which it infected pigs, it was a situation where pigs may look fine in the morning, and you come back in the afternoon, and you have you know massive amount of pigs with diarrhea. So that was really easy to tell when you you may may have had that disease. This one is going to be a little bit tougher because it moves a lot slower, and it looks like diseases that we commonly have today, things such as Salmonella. Uh, and erysipelas. So you'll, you'll see a couple of sick pigs. You may just see uh, some early mortality. Uh, some things that you may see would be 
or producers could be looking for would be like purple ears, purple nose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write about the fever. That is the one thing that does differentiate it. Um, if you've got caretakers doing a good job of taking temperatures, uh, the temperatures that these pigs get when they are infected tend to be between about 105 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. And most of our endemic diseases today, they really don't get that high except for, you know, an occasional pig. So that would be one way potentially that uh, that caretakers could uh, maybe detect. And if they see pigs in that range with some fevers, it, it's certainly time to contact their uh, veterinarian uh, and uh, make sure that we're getting uh, the appropriate officials involved so that we can test to make sure it is or it is not uh, African swine fever. Chris, put it in perspective for us, too. We've had a lot of discussion about is African swine fever as detrimental to the hog herd as maybe PERS or PED? When you look at the spread that it's had and just the impact of this disease, is it larger than those diseases measurably or similar in comparison yeah, that's a good question, Delaney. I, I would say, you know, with, with PERS and some of uh, some of our endemic diseases, we at least have some solutions. We have tests. That's maybe one of the biggest things. We have routine testing that we do that we don't quite have all that done or done routinely uh, today in diagnostic labs because we don't have uh, the, uh, we don't have those agents in the country who don't have African swine fever. So in order to test for it, you have to work through the diagnostic lab and you have to get the state and federal health officials involved. But certainly from a mortality standpoint, because uh, the disease is fatal and it moves slow at first, but it will eventually get all the animals sick. And, you know, some of the mortality rates that we hear from some of our colleagues uh, over in Eastern Asia, you know, uh, we maybe don't know completely because many times when they find it, they, you know, they, once they identify it, they try to, you know, either uh, euthanize the rest of the pigs and, and dispose of them. So we probably don't know what the end always looks like, but people that have, uh, worked with it, you know, I'd say 50 to 80% mortality would not be uncommon at all uh, with this strain that's currently circulating both in Europe and in Asia. So uh, we probably don't see that as often with the endemic diseases that we have, and we have some intervention strategies uh, that we can do with it. So uh, this one is certainly much more lethal than the ones that we have uh, that we're working with today. Now, Chris, you mentioned the uh, the infected meat and wild boars and people traveling and then feeding food waste. When you're looking at the jump from Eastern Europe to China, is there any research on how exactly that happened? Uh, I get the cruise ship brought it into Eastern Europe, but then was it somebody just carrying infected sausages on a plane back to China? Yeah, I, 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 they don't know for sure. I would speculate that that's the case because even when they've seen it move across uh, Western Europe, it, it will be in a location and then all of a sudden they'll find it, you know, hundreds to thousands of kilometers away. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have uh, one of the world's leading experts, uh, Dr. Klaus Deppner from Germany, a German epidemiologist, speak at the Swine Disease Conference in Ames last year. And he really said, he said, this is a pig disease, but it's a human problem. He says, human are really the primary way that 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 virus is spread and he gave multiple examples on how they think it's spread throughout Europe certainly the wild boar uh, is uh, is probably more of a concern there there's more of them over there and it can infect wild boars as well Um, but he said the issues uh, are are really the he thinks a lot of it is the food waste and maybe some of those backyard farms that maybe don't have you know good good biosecurity so you can have where wild boars could could get up and touch nose to nose with commercial 
commercial pigs. But uh, I would say, based on the speculation that you know, and and the maybe more of the common cultural practices, you know, when people travel, they, they like to bring these sausages with them. You know, they may all convene. He he had implicated maybe truckers or transporters over there. They tend to kind of congregate in, in kind of communal campgrounds on the weekends. And then they'll, you know, they'll be trading sausages. And he's got a picture, you know, of some wild boars up in the dumpsters, you know, like on the Monday morning afterwards, you know, eating eating the food scraps right out of there. So, so they think that's one of probably the primary ways that that it's moving around uh, uh, Europe is kind of in these infected meat products. Chris, I did have a quick follow-up for you. When you think about countries that have been infected with ASF, how long does it take for it to be eradicated, or or can it be? Is it just something that uh, those producers kind of always have to deal with, risk? Yeah, it's it's really tricky. you know, I would say certainly in China, they're, they're you know they're well beyond the point of finding the initial cases and getting them eradicated. Uh, I think you know in in uh, Russia and in Eastern Europe, I think what they're seeing is farms that have really good biosecurity. You know, they have uh, you know maybe even things that we go above and beyond what we do here in the U.S. They're able to keep it out as long as you know there's found some basic biosecurity principles. But you may have some you know in some of those countries, it's not uncommon for everybody to have one to five pigs in their backyard sort of deal uh, in those smaller villages. And in those cases, uh, you know, it really just kind of runs through there because they don't have that good biosecurity and they probably have easier contact with wild boars. So, um, you know, uh, we had a speaker uh, spoke from a uh, integrated swine company in Russia and they talked about some of their experiences and they're like, well, we have very big farms and we put up concrete walls and, you know, our internal transportation fleets with internal truck washes and guard stations and all those type of security measures and they they really felt that that's been you know fairly effective in in keeping it out but the issue is generally once you know a site gets infected you know they've got to uh, you know euthanize and eliminate and and dispose of those carcasses and then they've got to go through an extensive cleaning process before they can put animals back in there so i'm not sure if i know countries that have been successful maybe on individual cases on eradicating it from farms but any countries that have wild boars and that would certainly be a concern here if it got anywhere in the southern united states where we do have a healthy wild boar population is that threat would probably always be there. It, you know, without some sort of vaccine solution, that's probably not going to be um, an option here, in, at least in the short term. Chris, final question for you. I think as you look ahead, look at hopefully it doesn't come here to the United States. That would be just absolutely catastrophic, I think, for our hog herds. But pork producers listening, what should they be thinking as far as biosecurity goes? What should they be doing to prepare ahead of time in case the unspeakable happens? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think really what this is going to force us to do, and it's it's time to really think about these type of uh, decisions and how can we make our biosecurity better now in peacetime rather than in wartime. Um, but you know, really review those practices. There's a there's a program out there called Secure Pork Supply. Uh, my colleagues and I at the at Iowa State University Extension, we've been doing some educational workshops to help producers um, understand, you know, what an infection would mean here. I mean, there'll be some things that the state and federal government will do. Is is you know, when the first case is announced, there'll be a national standstill for at least 72 hours, if not longer, so that they can go out and find all the herds that may. Have had any contact with that initial herd in hopes of finding those herds 
testing them and then, you know, uh, hopefully eradicating and stopping that uh, virus before it really gets into the U.S. swine herd and pork chain. But um, a lot of the secure pork supply planning will help uh, producers go through and see areas that they can look to enhance their biosecurity. You know, I'd say on sow farms, uh, it tends to be pretty good. Just PERS and PED has kind of forced that. But on finishing sites, you know, it's probably a little bit too common, you know, that we'll have, you know, producers or caretakers, you know, removing, uh, you know, mortality from the building, walking out to the dead box, and then walking right back into the building, you know, with their same boots. So this is one that, you know, it will force us to be a lot better uh, if we want to, you know, prevent the spread if it ever does get come here. And one of the things that we try to emphasize in these workshops, too, uh, is that, you know, even if we never get, if we get lucky enough that we never have an African swine fever, any of those sort of uh, enhanced biosecurity steps that we would uh, move to or take additional steps today, it's going to pay off. Uh, it's going to pay dividends and, you know, fewer sick pigs due to PERS or influenza or PD or any of the, the viruses that we already have here in the country. There's going to be tangible benefits for producers today uh, and, you know, reduce mortality, reduce treatments, things such of that nature. So that's a lot of, of what, what we're trying to do is just get the word out, make people aware what that state and federal response would look like, because it will affect, you know, that standstill will affect producers of, you know, all eight, all sizes, you know, in all locations once the, the first official case is diagnosed. So just to be prepared and think through, you know, hey, if I can't move pigs for three to seven days, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle feed? How am I going to handle, you know, any sort of issues with moving animals, things like that, you know, just so that they're starting to think through some of those things and what things can I do to, to uh, keep it out, out of my barns, you know, if, if it did, uh, if it was out and about in the countryside, how do I prevent any of that sort of foot traffic or contamination back into my animals? So that's really where I think producers need to spend time getting educated, try to attend some of these workshops that, that we'll do here in Iowa. And I know other states are planning on doing similar things just to try to get educated and start thinking about those contingency plans now rather than waiting for um, the first official announcement. And then all of a sudden they can't move animals and they don't have any of the paperwork ready to get the permits in order to, to move them. So. Yeah, well, let's hope it never comes here, Chris. It is a devastating disease. Thanks for taking the time to fill us in on more about African swine fever. We really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, again, a big thank you to Dr. Rademacher there from Iowa State Extension. Really interesting stuff. He does a lot of of uh, studies with disease, with animal health, specifically related to the swine industry. So if you're interested in seeing some more of his work, be sure to check that out on Iowa State Extension's website. Or if you want to check out some of our work, you can always head to globalagnetwork.com where you can find our work as well as other podcasters' work. Or connect with us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AgNewsDaily. That is correct, Delaney. Listeners, be sure to check us out. And with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.